This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network where I dispense parenting advice to any and all guests like Dan Pfeiffer <laughs> from Pod Save America. That's him laughing. Uh, I'm just going to thank you guys in advance for telling someone else about this show. Thank you. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me, man. My, my intro here says you're Dan Pfeiffer from Crooked Media. That's not correct. You're Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. Which is part of Crooked Media, correct. Which is part of Crooked Media. Normally, when we have a guest on, we say, oh, you, you work at the White House. You were communications <laughs> director. That's a big deal. Tell me about that. We'll get to that part. Right. What's it like to be a co-host of Pod Save America, the world's favorite, <laughs> everyone's favorite political podcast? I don't know that it's everyone's Every- favorite. I can think of a few people, many of them work at Fox News, who are not fans of the podcast. I bet they're secret listeners. That's exactly right. They're self-hating listeners of, of Pod Save America. I mean, it has been the most unexpected, fun journey to be on. Um, when we originally started keeping a 1600 back uh, during the 2016 election, we were working with Bill Simmons on The Ringer. It was just like a little thing we were going to do for so a few you months. You and John Favreau did once a week for giggles, basically. Basically, yes. We basically did it for giggles. And then it did better than I think any of us possibly imagined. We thought it would be like our family, maybe some Obama staffers would listen to it. But people listened. And then so we eventually added a second podcast with Tommy Vitor, John Favreau, and John Lovett on Mondays. The idea was that we were going to stop after the election. I have very specific sense memories of listening to you. I remember yeah. driving around Minneapolis, listening to you around yeah. time at a public convention. You telling me not to worry yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, no. Walking around the beach later in August, telling me not to worry about it. Yeah, it was. Uh, then we got worried. Yeah, you you should not have listened to me. Is the basic <laughs> point that is that that was one of the so the election ends. We think we think we'll end it after the election. We we're going to hang around for a few months. Barack Obama had promised me an interview, and so we we're like, we'll st- hang around. We want to do it after the election, so we'd hang around. We do that Obama interview, and then you fold up our tents, go on because it didn't seem. I wasn't sure what the utility of or interestingness of it would be. And you, and you had other, you were gainfully employed, right? You were doing CNN hits. Yeah. You were doing comms for GoFundMe. Right. I had other. I had many other jobs, and this was a small hobby. And then we decided to relaunch once Trump won with a more. Um, Political focus. The idea being that we can, we had that maybe we could use this platform to explain the unexplainable, but also engage Democrats as they were trying to figure out what to do. You know, like looking at what was happening with the women's march, the airport protests. It was like, could we find a way to help tell these people, based on our experience, like what are the things they could do to make a difference, to organize for the future? And so it's the same podcast, but 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 the idea is we're also going to engage yeah. you and try to get you to be politically active yeah. instead of just listening. Want you to go right. do something. I mean, like during the campaign, we would encourage people to knock doors and vote, yeah. but the context was different, and it felt like the stakes in this current moment with Trump as president were so high. And we wanted to do something in politics. And we had been able to build this audience with Keep It 600. Is could we continue it and then leverage that audience for something? And uh, it w- it has grown beyond our wildest dreams. So now, now what part of your life does being a Pod Save America co-host occupy? You're on tour with the guys sometimes. Yep. I'm on tour. You've got a new baby. Congratulations. Thank You've you. got a new book. Yes, we still can, which is why you're here. That's right. Congratulations on that. you got a lot of, stuff, a lot of stuff going on, but it seems like you're more engaged with the podcast. Yeah, much more. I sort of made a decision last fall that the podcast had reached a point that I wanted to be able to dedicate more time to it, not just have it be a one to two hour a week hobby to be able to get out there on the road. We're doing... Um, Basically, uh, you know, th- three or four shows a month. And we get, we've been in more than a dozen states in the last year or so. And we're trying to go to swing states, meet with activists, have candidates on the show. And I wanted to be able to dedicate more time to it because it became, it was clear that it was having an impact at some level and was more important to me. So I left my job in Silicon Valley. 
I spent most of the, so that was back in September. And since then I've been doing the podcast. I do, a, I do some stuff for CNN as a CNN contributor. I wrote, I finished this book, which I'm not sure I could have done with a podcast yeah. and a job. And then as you mentioned, most importantly, uh, our daughter was born a month ago and that's now job one, two, and three. And then I try to do the podcast when she naps, and the book is done. So fortunately, now we're just out here um, talking about it. So you have multiple gigs. It seems like your life. I was I was reading the book, and, and at one point you 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 lay out the structure of your day. Well, it's not even your day; just your morning from like four fifty a.m. Yeah. up until like I don't know seven a.m. Yeah. And there's just shower, answer emails, read yeah. yesterday's news. It seemed very structured, very rigorous. Um, I'm sure it's very rigorous. Oh, I know it's rigorous now. You got a new baby. Yeah. Um, but it also seems like it's probably more looser and less structured. Do you like that after years? And you, you were in the White House for how long? Six years? I was in the White House. Two years on the campaign, six years in the White House. Do, yes, I do. I mean, it is, I have very much enjoyed having my life back. And I talk about it in the book, how when I, there just came a moment where I couldn't take not, like just I had lost so much in my life. I hadn't seen friends. I had missed weddings. I had, you know, there's a, uh, one night right before I decided to leave, my wife, who also worked in the White House at the same time, uh, we were planning to go. It was a Saturday night. She'd been pretty quiet. I think the president might have been away at Camp David or something. And we were going to go see a movie, something we hadn't done in a long time. And right about, right before we we're supposed to leave, something happens, and I have to get on a conference call with all the senior staff to talk about something. And we then have a very vigorous debate about something. And I think my side of the argument for what we should do lost. And so I was fuming mad. And so we're sitting through dinner, pre-movie. I'm very mad. Uh, I'm kind of grumpy about it. I finally come to terms with it. I might have had a beer. And now it's time to go to the movie. And we get to the movies. And my wife, who helped plan all of President Obama's press events, gets an email that says, the, and somewhat related to the conference call we said is that we're gonna now going to put on this event like 36 hours later. So she spends the entire movie. So you wrecked dinner. I wrecked dinner. She, wrecked, she, the, wrecked she wrecks the movie. The movie. She spends Very the couple. entire dinner, the entire movie in the lobby because there's no cell coverage in the theater. So she's got to be on her BlackBerry and on the phone. And we're just like, we can't. We can't live this way anymore. So that's that was around the time we decided to make our mutual exit and move to California. So you spent... Eight years working with the press, fighting with the press, <laughs> yelling at the press, um, sending angry emails sending at the angry press, emails yeah. telling telling people to go fuck themselves or, or being on the receiving end of yeah. that of that suggestion. Um, now you're in the press, right? You're, you're I mean, a, sort you're of. On yeah. CNN, you're yeah. a podcaster. You're, yeah. you're the press. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but what what didn't you realize? being on the other side of the table for eight years that you have figured out now in terms of perspective of, of how the press is doing or not doing their job? I think it's changed. The whole situation, I write about this in the book, has changed dramatically from the moment I started working with the press in January of 2007 for Obama. If you think about that period in time, Facebook was basically mostly for college kids. Twitter was mostly something used by people in the tech industry and not broadly. The iPhone did not yet exist. You couldn't watch news on your phone. Snapchat, Instagram, all those things weren't around. The iPhone barely existed. The, the iPhone was even, didn't even come out until the fall of 2007. Yep. So the, we've been part of this massive change. And then you add into that 
the financial crisis and how that affects media. Just the idea of what the quote-unquote media is has changed dramatically from 07 to now. And you, so you think about like— You say that 80 percent of your time used to be spent sort of thinking talking, about conventional press. Yes. How is ABC and the New York Times going to What interview this? should we do? Which outlet should we advance the story to to get the biggest bump? Should we do the New York Times? It was very— And if you thought that way now, you'd, you'd be out of a job. Yeah, I, I, I say this in the book that if you— that if a person, if the communications director for the 2020 campaign spends a fraction of that amount of time thinking about the quote unquote legacy media, then they will lose because just the tools of communication change and what it means to be the media. Like you say, like you're a member of the press now, but we, we're and you like, wince, but you are. Yeah, I mean, so if you think about a world where the, the press used to mean, you know, reporters for putatively objective newspapers and television outlets. And now it means everything from those people, CNN, the New York Times, to far-right outlets that are basically adjuncts of the Republican National Committee, Fox News, but also Breitbart, Free Beacon, and then people who host progressive podcasts. And so that's one of the things that I have learned or my opinion has adjusted over time is like media criticism – like generally, like why didn't the press do this or yeah. it's the press's fault is a fallacy because it's too broad a term to mean anything, right? Like you can be angry at one individual outlet for how they did a certain thing, but to say it's the press's fault is too – does it mean what it used to mean? It's too broad. It's funny though. People have a hard time letting go of that. There's still an ongoing debate about what responsibility do the mm-hmm. press have to – and the way they covered Hillary Clinton's emails in, in – uh, 2016? Yeah. yeah. It seems Thank like it you. was three decades ago, but it was really damage. two years ago. Yes. And there's still a lot of pointing to the front page cover mm-hmm. of the New York Times, that picture of Clinton and, mm-hmm. and Huma. Uh, and, and, and people hold that up and say, no, no, this is why she lost. And I can believe that, but we also spend a lot of time talking about every other part of the media and, and how they may or may not have influenced votes. I guess the answer is all of the above. Right. Right. I, th- I think you can look back. And as I've said this, I don't think it's the press's fault that Donald Trump won. When someone wins an election by 70,000 votes over three states, it's every it, like everyone is everything and everyone is somehow responsible for something. Does Hillary probably win if Jim Comey decides to write a memo instead of a letter? Probably. Does Hillary Clinton win if John Podesta and the DNC's emails don't get hacked? Probably. Does Hillary Clinton win if maybe she goes to Wisconsin or Michigan? Maybe. We've made, we've, we've made Facebook a bogeyman over the last yeah, year and, and like half. Every, everything, every, so there are so many things that bear some responsibility. Yep. I think it is fair to say that the, and it's, I think, pretty much, it's almost, it shouldn't even be a debate. The coverage of Hillary Clinton's email yep. was massively disproportionate to the the offense the under quote unquote underlying offense and that's in part because and I am guilty of this as well we all thought Hillary Clinton was going to win and so everyone covered it like Hillary Clinton was going to win so she was given the scrutiny of the president of the United States and Donald Trump was given the scrutiny of a Joker. Show. Yeah. yeah I think there was like and this is not to say that people didn't vet Trump there were incredibly in depth aggressive. Investigative if you wanted to know what was going on Donald Trump, it was all available out there. Yeah, it absolutely was. But what did not, there were no, what has changed, I guess, in some way in both our media and political culture is the ability of, you know, quote unquote, elite entities to exact consequences for bad behavior don't exist. The Republican establishment was, un, who did not want Trump to win, either the primary, in some cases, the general. They were unable to do anything that impacted the actual vote. If you're upset about his comments on the Access Hollywood tape or just being a 
an unrepentant racist on a daily basis. They couldn't really do anything. And the media's ability to be a referee for fact-checking and lying— Right. Every, t- every time it looked like, well, all right, this is the end for him. He can't possibly get past calling John McCain, yeah. uh, you know, d- impugning John McCain. That'll be it over and over and over. Um, I mean, it seems, seems like part of this is a media discussion. Part of it's a politics discussion. Yeah, it's what both. They're intertwined. The Republicans yeah. have. Um, when Obama was elected— the campaign collectively got a lot of plaudits for how smart you guys were about social media and you figured out how to raise money on the internet. Um, you spent time talking about how you got Obama to do two ferns to, to help get healthcare going. Um, so it wasn't like this was, you guys were unaware of sort of the power of digital media, but it seemed like the big shift was that it was still relatively contained. You guys could do a novelty like doing a Mark Maron show or a Zach Galifianakis show, but then you'd go back and do standard press, and it seems like all that's been sort of blown out now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the biggest thing that changed is Facebook reached a tipping point where it became the primary distributor for a large segment of the population of news. And once that happened, so you you raised some of these things we did, like these YouTube interviews, stuff like that. We did them to communicate with people, but we also did them because they would get mainstream press coverage. And there just wasn't the size of the audience of some of these digital outlets or social media platforms back in 2009, 2010 was not large enough to have mainstream. So it wasn't that you were, you wanted to use the, the platform. We wanted both, right? But, but you wanted ABC to yeah. write about the fact that you were using the platform. Absolutely. We wanted, we wanted to get as, we wanted to have the biggest impact we could with the, with the digital thing, but also have everyone be like, oh, look at the cool little stuff Obama's doing, because that will get more coverage than if we just did an event on student loan, if we do a YouTube interview on our student loan policy or we do Slow Jam the News with Jimmy Fallon on uh, student loans, right. that's going to get a lot more coverage than if we do an, a roundtable with students suffering from student loans. Right, and that's the lineage, right? That's Bill Clinton yeah. blowing a sax on Arsenio, yeah. and that's kind of a long-standing yeah. tradition of that sort of stunt yeah. stuff. But now it's different. If if you were advising the if was a Democrat in office in 2020, because Trump's a different category, yeah. but you've now encountered a world where sort of all media is covered, everyone's got a voice, at least theoretically. Um, there's entire sectors of the media that are appear to have like no boss. Yeah, I mean, it's, I want, we'll talk about more of that later. <laughs> I mean, do you have a sense of how you would approach that job? It seems like an almost impossible job if you don't have a Donald Trump who just sort of gets up and says what he wants. That there's no way of sort of controlling or or, or strategizing that messaging. Yeah, it's the job is going to be nearly impossible. It was when I had it, it was harder than when Dan Bartlett, who was Bush's communications director, had it. When Jennifer Palmieri and Jen Psaki, who were my successors, had it, it was harder than when I had yeah. it. The it's just getting harder every day because the tools, the traditional tools that the president has to communicate, are getting less impactful on a daily basis. And so the way I would think about it is. We think about communications primarily right now as media strategy. And so you have to um, lift that out, right? And so I think the next communications director of the White House should oversee, should be thinking, we should have digital content creation, you know, videos, social. I mean, the press secretary should be a part of that who is dealing with the press on a daily basis. You should have someone who is, you should have an operation that is using not just tweeting out everyone's or sending a Facebook post, who is trying to organize around getting people to carry your message on those social platforms, much in the way in which we now go door-to-door and phone calls to communicate. We need people to organize, use Facebook and Twitter to a lesser extent to organize actual people. And everything I say now about what we'll, will work— We'll look we'll outdated. Be, we'll look outdated. You know, you, you know, you look at this, 
in 2004, when Howard Dean was running an internet-based campaign, the technology he was using to organize people was Meetup. And then when we ran in- Still around. Yeah, still around. When we were, ran in 2008, the thing about this, Facebook was around and important, and it was very important for students doing grassroots organizing for Barack Obama, but it was not ubiquitous enough for us to communicate with our volunteers. So we had to build our own social network called MyBO. Um, so, you, so people could do extension with everyone on Facebook, yeah. communicate with their people. We ne- like we never thought about Twitter in any real way. Right. I think Obama might have sent one tweet. That was it. And then by 2012, you have a huge portion of the campaign that is focused on using Twitter for rapid response and media strategy. 2020 is going to look so different. Like we don't know what the new things are yet. So. It is like that's what I would say now, but that will like if someone were to play this back to the 2020, the White House communications director in January 21st of 2020, it's going to seem pretty stupid. We'll play it back. Um, before we play it back, let's take a break. I'm Sean Ramos from the host of Today Explained, a new show from Vox. It's an all killer, no filler daily news explainer that'll answer all the questions you ask yourself about the news. Our show's going to explain the news every way we know how clips, trips, radio drama, maybe even a song. She was warned. Nevertheless, she persisted. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Alternative facts. Very fine people on both sides. We claim in my time. Fire and fury. When nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Today Explained starts February 19th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm back here with Dan Pfeiffer, formerly of the White House. Now, the author of Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. You kind of spell it out. There's a photo. There's an interesting piece of art here. Do you want to describe it? It it is a a picture of Barack Obama dunking on Donald Trump. So you've got the Twitter metaphor right right. in there. That's exactly right. It's very good. It's very 2018. Or maybe it's 2017. If if I'm able to understand the metaphor, it probably is outdated. (laughs) It's fair enough. Fair enough. It's very good. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about, well, a lot more about your time in the White House. Um, you were communications director. Explain in, in plain English what that job means. The communications director. What it used to mean. What it used to mean. When I when I had that job, which was from 2009 to 2000, basically through the re-election, um, that job meant you were the person who planned, organized, and helped execute the president's communications and message strategy. So, not the press secretary, not the person on the podium. Generally. Not the person on the podium. Um, although that person was part of my operation, um, who, so we would, so you think about what is, what are the strategic goals of the white house? What are we trying to do? We're trying to pass this bill. Are we trying to defeat this piece of legislation? Are we trying to inform people about a, you know, a national crisis, like a swine flu epidemic or a hurricane? What are the strategic objectives of the white house? And now how do we go, what is the best way to communicate our message and our agenda to the American people. And then you would have a wide variety of tools to do that, presidential events, uh, interviews, um, press conferences, and sort of plan that out and make sure that that happens. And then working with whoever the senior advisor was at the time, David Axelrod or David Plouffe, on the message. Like, what is what is the story we're trying to tell and how are we telling it? So in, in, in when I write about business, I often spend a lot of time with corp comms people, mm-hmm. and they're often very important. They're often very useful to me as a reporter. 
They generally don't have decision-making power, and very often they're treated as sort of the people we deal with once we've made the decision are the ones who are going to sort of talk to people like me. When I watch The West Wing um, and when I listen to the stuff you guys do and lots of coverage, there's a lot of uh, energy spent talking about what the comms people do in the White House. Is that simply just because that's what journalists spend their time on and that's who they like to talk about and that's who they see the most? Or, or is comms a more significant position at the White House because it's messaging to the country as opposed to trying to sell a new Yeah. I think it is. I mean, there may be some bias in yeah. that. Talk about, talk about how important your job yeah. was. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you how important I was. Um, it was like we are. There's probably some selective bias because we're the often the front-facing people of the White House. We're the ones doing briefing reporters or doing interviews or whatever else it is. And you know, I'm one of the people that reporters would call when they yep. have questions. But so that's that's the standard sort of bias that you have if you're someone yeah. writing about this like well the person I talk to is very important right and there and you're the and there are lots of people with very important roles who get um, less attention because yeah. they're not they don't interact with reporters right but what is different is communications is a vehicle to achieve everything the president's trying to do it is part of the legislative strategy it's part of the political strategy and the president sees it that way yes in in every in our white house and in every previous white house that I've ever uh studied or talked to people from it. You are one of the president's senior advisors. You're in the room for the discussions. And because- So just as important as whoever's going to actually push the bill across in Congress or- Those people may disagree with that, yeah. but I think you are, you are like every legislative meeting on how to pass healthcare, the communications director or some of the communications team would be a part of because, you know, we did a lot of press interviews. We were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act specifically designed to help pass the bill. To sh- you know, you would try to show Democrats that- you are, you know, providing them air cover for their vote, or you would do, you know, local interviews in the districts of targeted members so that they would know. And so it is the vehicle for doing all things because it is in many ways absent, you know, the ability to launch wars. The One of the president's greatest strengths and assets. You're is saying just, you did not have access to the football? I'm not saying I didn't, but, <laughs> but no, no, I'm very clear, I did not. Of course, uh, in, in, in 2020, anyway. You're like, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Hopefully, who knows? There's that guy at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, hopefully someone has uh, hid the football, yeah. like, I don't know, by the salads or something in the White House. I don't know. So speaking of Trump, right, so we're in an era now where I can tell you, my, part of my, it's partly my job to follow this stuff, but even if it wasn't, I could tell you who Ho Hicks is or yep. was, uh, Sean Spicer, uh, Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, they're, they're Saturday Night Live characters. Um, so they're they're better known than ever, the people who do comms and the press secretary. It seems like in a lot of ways they have less power than ever because everyone sort of at this point fundamentally realizes that unless Donald Trump says it, it's not a thing. He, he may also change his mind a minute later. Yeah. But but they they it seems like one of the problems of covering the White House is that the comms people and the, the press secretary actually can't really communicate what the president thinks for a bunch of reasons. Right. I mean, and they have all taken whatever limited credibility they had when they got to the White House, and they ceremoniously lit it on fire uh, on the on the North Lawn. Yeah. And so you can't, like, the White House press briefing, which happens every day, and it's good theater, and it gets, is it's on a bigger TV deal than ever, right? Yeah. Something I think crazy is going to happen. Yeah, but it's always pointless. Like, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has as much knowledge of what Donald Trump's going to do two days from now as I do, because she's either saying nothing— or is she saying the thing that Donald Trump said two days ago, which will not be true two days from so now? So when you see the press increasingly demanding that Sarah Huckabee Sanders lied 
she, she either lied knowingly or she wasn't communicating the truth. To me, it seems like that's this is something we settled a long time ago. Yes. Um, but they are incre- – it seems like it's only ramping up and you had the the incident the other day where the, the journalist from Playboy is yelling mm-hmm. at her, you're a mother. It seems like that's – you're venting at the wrong person in some ways. Well, she makes a decision every day to go lie for a liar and the, her job is to, to – the, the press secretary is an interesting position because – you work for the president, but you were supposed to be the press's liaison to the White House. It was, whether it was Josh Ernest, Jay Carney, or Robert Gibbs, it was their job to come in right. and argue for press access, to tell the president to do a press conference. And sometimes others, myself every once in a while, would argue against that or it wouldn't work schedule-wise, but that's their job. And so, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders has decided. She, it's, so there's a couple of things when we think about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' lies. And I don't really, the theatrics are fine. I've always thought, probably would have been better if we never put the TV cameras in the room anyway so everyone can, like yeah. the yelling is, no one really Remember when that yelling. was a concern uh, the press had when, when Trump was coming in, they were going to restrict access yeah. to, to the White House? Yeah, I think once you've done it, you can't undo it. Yeah. It's... But it turns out they love it. I mean, it, yeah. and it's laughable. And I yeah. mean, for one, they leak like, a, like yeah. whatever metaphor you want. Yeah. And also like Trump loves TV, right? Yeah. Of course he would want a TV performance daily. Yeah, I mean, it's, I can't imagine a world, the idea that every day that Sarah Huckabee Sanders briefs Donald Trump stops what he's doing and turns on the TV and watches it while eating, I don't know, a taco bowl or whatever he eats. And then she has to go into his office afterwards and get critiqued on it. The briefing is important, but it is, watching the briefing is, should be the 10,000th thing on the most important things to do list for the President of the United States. Like Barack Obama would catch the briefing if it was on a TV in his outer office while he was waiting to go somewhere, but ne- would never sit down and watch. He didn't have the time. You should be very busy. Yeah, you should. You have a lot to do. There are more things to, your inbox is more expansive than your available free time on any day, daily basis. You free, put aside the fact that Donald Trump has already spent the first three hours of the morning watching and live tweeting Fox and Friends. Then he's going to take an hour and watch the press briefing. It's crazy. But I think when you throw out the, the lies, right? Right. So there's two sorts of things that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is doing. One is... She's going, she is actually going out and saying what she believes to be the case. It turns out not to be the case. And I am sympathetic for that, except for the fact she knows that's not going to be, that's the most likely outcome. She knows the thing she's saying, which has been relayed to her yeah. by Donald Trump or Stephen Miller, yeah. is almost certainly not true yes. at this point. And then there's the big lies that she had, whether it's the millions of fraudulent votes yeah. or like those sorts, like she is carrying lies, whether it's the, the idea that it's the Democrats' fault about the child separation policy, which is obviously not. And she does that every day willingly. She doesn't have to have that job. I'm sure she would make plenty of money being the sixth member of the five on Fox um, or whatever else. But she chooses to do that, and that, and she should be whole, held in, in national contempt for that. But sh- should we care about her versus anyone else in the Trump administration? It seems like when we yell at her, uh, yes, I think that, we should that we're, care. We're, okay, because it seems like I mean t- we've got Kirsten. Uh, what's her name? The, Nielsen. Yeah, Nielsen. we should care about all of them. Uh, they're all they're all lying now all yeah. the time. Um, it's not just Donald Trump. Yeah. They've all sort of it's all carried down. Yeah. If but you it weren't seems really like going to lie, you quit or you got fired right. for not lying. It seems like the person we should spend time focusing on lying should be their boss. Yes, uh, like Donald Trump should get all of the attention, but the but the press secretary and the secretary of Homeland Security to take two examples are in a normal world incredibly important people whose job it is to communicate. In, important information to the public. So let's take Kirsten Nielsen, who used Twitter to just boldface lie. This about, is, we're recording this on a Monday. This will come out on Tuesday or Thursday. Many news cycles from now. Yeah. But she's she was lying about whether or not the the U.S. had a had a separation had a policy to separate yeah. 
immigrants from their, their kids. So the Secretary of Homeland Security is not a normal government official, right? Her job is to speak to the country after a terrorist attack, a hurricane. She is one of the people who will tell you that if you were living on said island, evacuate now. Yes. And the fact that she it's is— It's safe to come back. It's safe to come back. Your water is—like, there are whole hosts of very important information. Literally life or death. Life or death. And now she is just—she's like a low-rent Sean Spicer in that job. And that is that is going to matter at some point. Like, I remember in 2009 or 10, one of, one of these many years I worked there, when we had—there was a swine flu epidemic. And the government's job was to convince people to get a flu vaccine— to undertake hygiene measures to protect themselves and their children from the flu, which was killing yep. people. And who's going to believe Kirsten Nielsen when she goes out to do that? They're not. And that that is incredible. That is, that is whether they lie about this other policy is terrible, and we wish we had better people in office, but the rubber hits the road on the things when the president's job or the president's staff's job is to communicate to the entire country, not just the 38 to 41 percent who are Trump supporters. And they don't understand that part about the job. They don't care about that part of the job. Are you, uh, as a, again, as a semi-detached or semi-casual observer of this, I'm astonished that sort of the escalation of the lying and and each time we think we've cleared a new bar, we go farther. Um, again, Donald Trump is someone who has lied his entire life yeah. without consequence. You start and then he gets to office. You start with Sean Spicer making up what's kind of a comical lie about yep. Crowd size, but now now you've got Nielsen lying about a policy, which again, it's 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 not difficult to parse because you've got other people <laughs> in the administration saying, no, no, this is our policy; it's on the record. Um, could you see this trajectory coming when when you saw Sean Spicer showing up that first day and saying this is the biggest crowd in history? Yes, I mean Trump. Is, I knew Trump was going to be a very bad president. He is a worse president than I ever possibly imagined. Um, much worse, but. We elected, John Lovett, uh, my fellow Pot Save America co-host, always says, we elected our worst citizen president. And, I, and so we're, we are reaping uh, the consequences of that on a daily basis. And it's only going to get worse. And that's why, and I make this point in the book, that 2018 is so critical. Because if they can do all this lying, all this corruption, all this obstruction of justice, and, cont- and keep control of Congress, then all bets are off for what comes next. I mean, we are... All the guardrails of our democracy will be gone because the only thing that is somewhat hemming in the Republican Congress, which is just deep in corruption, and this White House, which is even deeper in corruption, is the idea of some electoral consequence for their action. It's not doing a lot, but it's like it's like the emergency break here. Mm-hmm. And if it turns out there are no consequences for that, then it is off to the races in a deeply dangerous way that will take us a very long time to come back from. Dan Pfeiffer, you're freaking me out. I, I've like the book, the book is hopeful, but it is it makes the point that to reach that better, more hopeful place, we got we got to do all the things that Barack Obama laid out in his farewell address about organizing, marching, and most importantly, voting. What's it like writing a book about something that is both it's a memoir of your time, right? That part is sort of fixed in memory, uh, but it, it's also about something about Trump it's, and. It, Things were changing literally minute by minute, cycle by cycle. At what point do you go, listen, I, I, I got to stop. I can't add this new outrage. I can't add this new development. This was this was the great challenge of writing the book, other than just sitting down and writing, I which mean, is in and of itself a challenge. Um, there is a section in the book where I talk about my role as White, House, as White House communications director and talk about how Trump has tried to change that. I had to rewrite that section five times 
just to account for all the hirings and firings of Trump's communications director. I started it when they had this sort of no-name guy named Mike Dubke, yeah. and then Sean Spicer was sitting in, and then Scaramucci. I think, I think Hope Hicks is still in here. At this I, Hope Hicks is in here. I put in Hope Hicks's departure. Uh, I think it didn't make the galley, but between the galley and the actual book, I had to add in a section about Hope Hicks, Hicks leaving the White House to spend more time in the grand jury. And uh, but that, So I had to make some decisions eventually about to talk about Trump in the broadest way possible and what and how to beat him as opposed to narrating the day-to-day. Like Bob Mueller is not in this book because as I was writing the book, it was not clear to me that Bob, Trump would not fire Bob Mueller between the final edits and when yep. it came out. And, and I talked to your, your pal, Alyssa Mastermonica, who's winking at me back here <laughs> when she was prepping her book. So this is, there are multiple, uh, I was in the White House with, with Barack Obama books out. There are more coming. One of them is going to be written by Barack Obama. Yes. Um, that's probably, probably going to be the best one. I can how, do you, what's, how do you figure out, okay, this is okay to put in, this isn't okay to put in, this is my story. No, that's Alyssa's mm-hmm. story. There's, there's stories in here about Alyssa and you specifically, mm-hmm. her helping you out. She's, she's a good pal to have, apparently. If you <laughs> yeah, she's a, very, she's, you, she's what, a great what, friend. What was your, med, your medical condition in the end? It, it ended up being— It's in the uh, book. Okay. Yeah, it's in the book. No, no, it's a totally fair question. Uh, I was—I ended up having—I have a blood vessel in my brain— that spasms when my blood pressure gets to a certain level. I'm going to keep w- this, this podcast Yeah, chill. it's a super chill. So don't ask me any tough questions or this is on you. Um, so what happened, when, and when that blood vessel would spasm, I would have stroke-like symptoms because your body thinks it's having a stroke and I would lose feeling in one side of my body. And so that happened on uh, a couple of occasions. This is an example of what a crazy person I was is it happened one night at dinner back in 2013. It's a press dinner. It's a press dinner. I was filled with reporters, and I started having this very weird feeling of tingliness all over my body, and I thought I was having an allergic reaction to what I ate. So I got up to go to the bathroom, and when I stood up, I was really having trouble walking, but I was thought my leg was asleep, and I went to the bathroom, looked at my face, and I was afraid it was just like, ex- my face was yeah. exploding. And I looked totally normal. I mean, other than like the yeah. very dark circles and pallid complexion of that part of my life. And... Um, Came back to the dinner, so like I feel okay, and I'm I'm just like in a, and like I am the, I'm the main, I'm the main course at this dinner, so it's all reporters talking to me, and I'm trying to keep this conversation going, and eventually I look down and I see that my shoe, is off, and just my foot, my sock foot is on the concrete road, an outdoor patio, and I have no idea, and I'm like I have to get out of here because something is like really wrong, but I didn't. This was dumb of me, but I thought, uh, the I don't really want to. I don't want to have some sort of medical condition with reporters from the Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, New York Times. It's bad look. Yeah, it's just, like, if it's nothing, let's not have a scare, yeah. right? Leave the dinner, immediately call Alyssa, who uh, calls the White House doctor, who's like, and by this time, the, the symptoms have started to subside some, and the doctor's like, you should definitely go to the hospital now. So I went to the hospital. Alyssa met me there. They couldn't really figure out what was wrong with me because the, eventually they gave me some medicine to lower yeah. my blood pressure. It was fine, and I left the hospital at 3 a.m., went home, slept for three hours, and I went back to work. Because that seems like a good idea. Yeah, I mean, like it's at when the you, time— you may or may not have had a stroke. Yeah, at the time, there was no other option. I didn't even consider the idea I wouldn't come in for this very important meeting that was at like 9.30 in the morning. This is, by sidebar, by the way, this is part of the, the culture of the White House, Yeah, it's right? not good. And it's not specific to the Obama White House. No. So you think you have a very important job. You do have a very important job. The, the thing couldn't possibly— mm-hmm go on without you being there. And by the way, if you're not there and in the Trump White House, you're going to lose your stance. Yeah. So you, you do Mine it. was more, I felt, a re- 
there, we were in the middle of this big strategic debate about how the president was going to talk to the nation about a potential strike on Syria. I had pushed for a, I, I had a very strong view of how we were going to do that. Yeah. I had pushed people there. I felt like I did not feel that I was going to lose my standing because that's just not the kind of people I worked with. But I felt an obligation that I had to be there. And also the president was in Russia at the time. So a lot of his, ironically enough, a lot of his senior sta- other senior staff, like Jay Carney, who was yeah. president at the time, were— um, Do you honestly believe that if this was different, you know, wasn't you guys weren't talking about mm-hmm. Syria, if the president was here, if Jay Carney was around, that you wouldn't have pushed yourself to go— No, I, was, I definitely wouldn't right, have done so it. This was how I justified Alyssa's myself. Not a, yeah, yeah, I was a crazy Thank person. You, went to the meeting, walked out, was in Alyssa's office, immediately— lost feeling in half my body again, and was basically carried out of the West Wing into a White House medical unit, ambulance had taken to GW, where I spent a good portion of Let, time. Let's not give away the full the full story, because it's in the book. Yeah, good. But but you're okay now? I am great now. And I, there's also a great story about you ripping your pants. I did, uh, Which Alyssa's yes. also involved in. Yes. So, so what I was getting to in the beginning was, those are your stories. You get to tell the story yep. of your non-stroke, or yep. maybe a stroke, and your pants ripping, and Alyssa gets to tell some of her stories. Yep. And then, do you guys huddle together and say, listen, I'm ta- I, there's this anecdote that I want to spend time on. Ben Rhodes, you've got a new mm-hmm. book coming out. Are we going to overlap? Do we care? Do we have different re- recollections? We, we didn't... So the way I thought about the book, right, when I left the White House, you basically when you leave the White House, if you're a, like a longtime White House aide, you turn in your BlackBerry, because we had BlackBerries back then, you turn in your badge, and then someone from the publishing industry greets you outside the gate, and is like, will you write a tell-all book? Yeah. And I was like, no, I will not write a tell-all book. But then, the, and, but I couldn't, so then I was like, will your you write a non-tell-all book? Or tell some book, yeah. right? And I was like- You gotta like, show a little leg. Yeah, and so I could not, I was like interested in telling a story, but I couldn't think of what my angle was. Like, what is the, what is the unique thing that I'm going to say is be different than David Axelrod's book that had come out the year before I left the White House or would be in Barack Obama's book or some of these other ones? And I couldn't come up with anything until Trump won. And then when Trump won, I looked at, I sort of looked back at my time in the White House differently through all these things that I thought led to Trump winning. Changes in media, the rise of a propaganda operation best embodied by Fox News, the, uh, the radicalization of the right wing. And I, th- we, the battle against the birther conspiracy and fake news. And so it's like, I thought it was like, well, we dealt with some of these things. And so knowing now that they're going to lead to Trump, how do I look at them differently? How can I tell the story of that in a way that's Pod Save America-esque, funny, but also can derive some lessons and ideas for Democrats who are thinking about how not just defeat Donald Trump, but the basic, the the larger virus that is Trumpism in our politics. So you turn that into your publisher and they go, that's great, but come on, give me give me a better Barack Obama story. No, they were good. They yeah. were good. I mean, I made it very clear. Like, Barack Obama has his story. I say this in the introduction of the book. It's not a tell-all book because I'm not an asshole. Um, and it's not a history of the Obama administration because I'm not a historian. And it's not even a story. There, there are moments like the bin Laden raid or some of the things around healthcare that I was at least not around for the bin Laden raid, but the, sort of the aftermath and how you deal with it, yeah. that they're Barack Obama's story to tell, and he's going to tell them better. And I think that's something that runs through all of the books that people have written is we have stories to tell about what we saw, and then Barack Obama will have a better story to tell about what he saw. And so I wrote it. I didn't run it by anyone. I didn't like— check, uh, I didn't like huddle with Ben Rhodes and say, you tell this, you tell, I'll tell that. But I knew the things that were not my story to share. Do you, do you, uh, I assume that when you, when Ben Rhodes books comes out, you flip immediately to the back to see how many times you're in the index? <laughs> no. No, really? No, that's a very Washington thing to do. That's why when David Plouffe wrote his book, the 2008 campaign, he didn't even put an index in the book so that people can do that. Weird. You guys are weird people. Which, well, we at least aspire to seem, uh, less terrible than most. Speaking of terrible, uh, you spent a chapter on Fox News. 
like you just mentioned, that sort of in, in your mind, this seeded the, the environment that mm-hmm. we're in now. Um, I thought for years watching The Daily Show go into Fox News every day, I, I thought they overestimated the power of Fox News. If you looked at their nightly mm-hmm. ratings at any given night, relatively small audience. Um, and if you, if you watch Jon Stewart, what I got the sense of, like, well, they're watching Fox News every day, so of course they're being driven crazy by it. And I could imagine in the White House that you guys are being driven crazy by it. But it seemed like everyone was overestimating their their power at the time. Now it's literally Donald Trump's favorite show. Yep. You can't overestimate it. Um, was there something about Fox in retrospect that, that you sort of fundamentally misunderstood or did you see it clearly and we just didn't get it? I think when we first started, we thought of Fox as a conservative media outlet that was obviously did not like Barack Obama, who was not conservative, yeah. but abided by the same rules that journalistic organizations about it. Like, yes, you do a Fox interview, it's going to be tougher, it's going to be on conservative terrain. What it took a while to realize was that it's not a journalistic outlet. It is a propaganda outlet that hires journalists as beards, basically. And, like, the the metaphor I sometimes use is, like, the, this is very dating myself, but uh, it's a Beverly Hills cop metaphor, but, like, the the quote-unquote journalist at Fox News, whether it's Brett Baer or Chris Wallace, they're the coffee grounds to smuggle the cocaine of propaganda. Oh, I thought you were going to go banana in the tailpipe. But Ed in the tailpipe would have been good, too. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and by the way, they, they, part of their defense very often, I just interviewed James Murdoch, right, and it's, it's, it's up and down the, the empire, is, is a version of that, which is whenever you're angry about something, well, that's just the entertainment wing of Fox News. That's not, that's not actually the journalism of Fox News. Somehow that's, that's, that's cordoned off. But, but, um, but yes, they're, they're not on the level. Um, yes, they represent, in this case now, the Trump, the Trump White House. Um, but, you know, if you looked at their, their nightly ratings any given night, it's, it's a very small set. Most people are watching Big Bang Theory or yeah. something else. So why does it matter that there is a irresponsible right-wing media outlet because that, that has a relatively small number of viewers on a given night? I th- it, it matters a lot more in our social media age because what's happening is it used to be, yes, it's these 2 million people who are watching Hannity or that's 500,000 people are watching. Right. And wh- they're probably going to vote Republican to begin with. Yes. Yes, but what what I think Democrats don't fully now, grasp now, but maybe didn't grasp then, myself included for at least part of the time, is what's happening now is Fox is providing content, anti-Democratic, Republican, con- anti-Obama content, now pro-Trump content that is telling a story. And then that content is being weaponized by people using Facebook to promote it. And so now it is spreading like a virus throughout the body, the body politic, and it's doing so under the guise of news. This is not an RNC, like it is essentially an RNC press release, right. but you can say, oh, it's it's reporting, it's Fox News. And so it is spreading everywhere. And I, I talk in the and book- And you think it matters whether it comes from Fox News as opposed to random, if, if, if it wasn't Fox News pushing in, if it's just a random guy on the internet, you think at this point that still matters. Yes. That it comes from a guy behind a desk in a suit, yes. a woman in a skirt, yes. it still matters. Yes, that's exactly right. It matters. This is the, the entire, you know, Gabe Sherman, whose book, whose book on Roger Ailes and Fox, yep. talks about this a lot, which is, this was the, this is Ailes' original idea. Ailes is not a journalist. He is a Republican, he was a Republican political operative. And he was basically using Fox News as a way to spread the, the conservative message and to do it aggressively. And it is, in too often, it's changing. This is definitely changing. Trump, it, the, the slavishness which they have attach himself to Trump is changing a little bit of the perception within the media. But when we had our war against Fox, the rest of the White House press corps came to Fox's defense. Now, Fox did not reciprocate yeah. that when the media, when Trump launched a war on the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. 
And now I think people recognize that, are starting more and more to recognize that the journalism part is nothing more than the thing that James Murdoch can point to when he's talking to you. Do you... I've spent time talking. Uh, we've had I've had him a couple times now. Uh, Oliver Darcy from CNN, yep. Charlie Warzel from yep. BuzzFeed, talking about this other part of the right wing conservative media, which is now like metastasized way beyond Fox yep. News. It's individual guys like Mike Cernovich, uh, still a Drudge Report. Um, that sphere looks much bigger, and it seems like in a lot, of, lot, very often that stuff comes to Fox News from sort of that weird fever swamp yep. of, of the internet. Do you think that's a permanent feature, or does that go away after the Trump era? I think it's probably a permanent feature for at least the the, the foreseeable future. So I guess semi-permanent. And there's no lefty equivalent of that. They'll you know again the standard sort of response for Fox News is from from a James Murdoch is well you guys have MSNBC and it's the yeah. same thing. But there's no BS. and there's you guys at Crooked Media, but there really isn't sort of the same. There's a couple unhinged lefty bloggers that we all sort of make yeah. fun of generally. It doesn't seem to have the same equivalent on the right. Right. So you think through like what the right is, the quote unquote fever swamp. And I thought that was a great podcast you did with Charlie and Oliver. Thank Oliver you. is one of my favorites. Those are good. Is, so there's like the absolute craziest people like Mike Cernovich, right? So sort of these, these pro-Trump Twitter personalities. Crazy slash smart, right? Because he kind of probably knows what he's doing. Crazy like a fox. Yeah, I mean, the maybe. Pizzagate people, right? Yeah. And, and, the, the, and the guys who walk into the pizza parlor with a gun. Yeah. The consequences of that, yeah. right? And so then there's uh, there's Fox News, but then there's Breitbart, the Free Beacon, Gateway Pundit, LifeZet. There's this huge apparatus whose job it is to every day carry an, a pro-Trump message and an anti-democratic message and to shape the conversation in politics and on social media about national affairs. And this is the thing. If you ask me like what keeps me up at night about 2020, it's not the Koch brothers' money. It's not Russian hacking. It's not voter suppression laws. Those things also keep me up at night, but the thing that keeps me most up at night is this media advantage Republicans have built up. So you think about 2016, Donald Trump says something, and then you have Fox, Breitbart, these Twitter personalities all pumping that in, in the most viral way possible because they understand the benefits of outrage in the Facebook algorithm, pumping that in like to amplify his message and sort of flood the zone. And Facebook says they're going to dial that back. Have less outrage, less fake news. Well, I, that, I often, Does that help you sleep better? No, because the challenge for Facebook is they, if you do the simple version, right, and Recode understands more than me the simple version, but simple version of their business incentive is they show you content with the most engagement. Most engagement is some combination, depending on the day, likes, shares, comments. And... That's why Breitbart does these outrageous headlines because they want people yeah. to respond to it. So now it's a really engaged piece of content. And as long as their business model is keep as many people on the platform as long as possible so they can show them the most ads, this is going to be a challenge. It's a little like the NFL trying to fix the concussion problem. You can do some, Built in. You can do some edges, but it is the core of your business model. There's still big dudes hitting each right. other. Right. So my, my point for Democrats is, is crooked media is an important part of this, Patsy America's part, but we need, we need to build a progressive media infrastructure that is the bizarre version of the Republicans. It shouldn't be propaganda. It shouldn't be dishonest. It shouldn't be racially divisive. It has to be the things that work best for Democrats, inspirational, hopeful, fact-driven. But we need these sort of nodes of amplification to carry the Democratic message. Otherwise, we're going to get swamped again and spend all of our time talking about what Donald Trump wants us to talk about. I worry as both someone who wants a different administration and also just as a regular human that, that a lot of what I see in my Twitter feed and associated Twitter feeds are people, like-minded people, talking to themselves. So we're all outraged about the way immigrants are being treated at the border right now, and there's a lot of, we, we must do something about this. Uh, we're quote-tweeting uh, Kirsten Nielsen. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like 
several years into this, we still haven't figured out how to reach audiences that aren't us. Any right. any advice to the next crop of candidates who are going to try to bridge that gap? I think what is going to end up happening is we are going to need to do essentially the equivalent of door knocking and phone calling, but on Facebook. And so, like, let's say we have a group of target voters, right, who, like, we're going to have to communicate with them and share with them content that we know from data or from whatever else is content that matters to them. So it, it's not just I'm going to knock on all these doors. Like, your job as an organizer is going to be, I this target voter here is someone who distrusts the quote-unquote legacy media or they distrust um, CNN or, yeah. or the New York Times or whatever else. And so the organizer is going to have to show them you know, via Facebook or text or whatever the messaging it, the messaging tool at the moment is, a piece of content from, say, the Wall Street Journal that says, like, maybe we know they're upset about corruption. And they're not, anything from the New York Times is fake news about corruption, So, but they believe in the Wall Street Journal. So let's show them the, from the news side of the Wall Street Journal, this article about Tom Price's private flights or Scott Pruitt's problems. And we're going to have to move offline organizing, online organizing. It's going to be hand-to-hand. Seems even out. harder. It's going to be very hard. Even harder we, because even, even door knocking, you can literally go to someone's door and knock on their door. Maybe they'll answer it. Social media, right, is constructed for you to create your own We have the tools in our pocket, yeah, though, right? You can like, do it. like your your Facebook feed may be it mostly people you believe in, but not entirely because it's it's really people you went to high school with and college with, right? Yeah. And or whatever, or some point in your life, either one, right? And so a lot of those people aren't going to necessarily, many of them will agree with you, not all of them will. And we also will have in our hand a with our phones our contacts. And so there have been some nascent technologies put together by um, democratic uh, progressive tech companies about using your contacts, like matching your contacts to voter yep. file and data. And then you can communicate with them. Like your, your pro, your quasi pro Trump uncle might be on the fence and right. you might have the capacity. Or we're going to gonna target them. people in swing States. Yep. Turns out, you know, these five people yep. in Florida. Yep. So them. I think we're going to have to move to that because we now live and we don't have this broadcast model anymore where we just go out and we say things to the world because information is filtering from this podcast or from CNN to people, other than the group of people who are seeing it in the moment, they're hearing about it second, third, fourth hand. And we're going to have to see if we can find ways to pass in information along from a credible known uh, source. This is, we're going to leave on an update. That's good. <laughs> yeah, right? There, feel, feel there is hope. Moderately, there, let's see your book. Yeah, yes, we, yes still we still can. It is hopeful. See, we brought it all around. Yeah. Waiting for your for your publicist to there he goes gives you a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Alyssa doesn't. Eh, Alyssa, she's giving you, she giving you side yeah. eye from back there. Yeah, two thumbs up. Thank you, thank you, Dan Fife for coming. Alyssa, thank you. Great. Thanks to you guys for listening. We always love it when you listen. We love it when you tell people about this podcast because that's good too. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence Thirteen and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Rico Media for free. Joel Robbie edits this show. He does a great job. My producers Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson do a great job as well. This is Rico Media. I will see you soon. Today's show is brought to you by Facebook. Here's my colleague, Nishat Kurwa, to tell you more. In 2017, Facebook hit more than 2 billion users. And then at the beginning of 2018, Facebook found itself at the center of a broader conversation happening around the spread of fake news on the internet. To help shed some light on the work that goes into the fight against misinformation, Facebook partnered with documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville to create a short film called Facing Facts. Facing Facts takes viewers inside Facebook headquarters to learn more about the complex challenges the social network is facing. It's a unique opportunity to pull back the curtain and take a critical look at how Facebook is addressing these issues. 
Get an inside look at Facebook's fight against misinformation. Watch the film at InsideFeed.com.